You're listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn Church, J-Town. In Ecclesiastes, we discover that a life spent in pursuit of pleasure, achievement, and control will ultimately leave us empty-handed. Life isn't about what we can obtain, but about what we already have, and learning to receive it from God with gratitude. Welcome to Ecclesiastes, life as gift, not gain. So if you got a Bible, we're in Ecclesiastes chapter one. So we're starting a new series uh, starting today. And we're going to work through the whole summer through the book of Ecclesiastes. Originally, we planned on doing six weeks in this and six weeks in Proverbs. Uh, but about a month and a half ago, all of our six lead pastors of the different churches that we're a part of uh, got together and decided, all right, six weeks may not do Ecclesiastes justice. And so we're going to do 12 weeks in it. And so we've entitled this series, uh, Wise Living Life as a Gift uh, and Not Gain. And we'll kind of unpack what that means over the course of these next 12 weeks. But just a hint of what, I'm, what I think Ecclesiastes is trying to help us see is that uh, God has given us much to enjoy in this world. Uh, food, family, um, vacations, a job, um, biking, running, exercise, health, whatever you, watching PGA championship a little bit later to see if feel comes through, going for the old guy. Um, yeah, there's a lot that, that, that God has given to us. And there's a key to us enjoying that. And a key to us enjoying that is to see it as a gift and not something that we've got to grasp a hold of and make it do something for me that it was never created to do. And so uh, that's what we're after and what we're trying to do throughout this series. Ecclesiastes, some have said, is the kind of the first lesson of the Bible and the rest of it's the second lesson. I find it interesting that uh, some scholars say Job is the, the earliest book that we have in our Bible, even though it shows up in the middle. Uh, and it's interesting that the first earliest book that God gives to us is a, a book about suffering. It tells you a little bit about life and what God's trying to get us to understand. And then we've got these other wisdom literature like Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. And if you only read the book of Proverbs, you can have a very naive understanding about life. You can have a very naive understanding of, about discipleship and formation because you can become very formulaic. And I, and I hate formulaic Christianity. I loathe it. And what I mean by that is like, if you do A and you do B, you're always going to get C. And Proverbs reads like that. And there is a place for that. There is. And generally true. You, you obey God. You follow after him. You do what the Proverbs say about wisdom and how to live. Generally speaking, life's going to be a lot better for you. So I'm not saying there's not truth in that. Uh, and at the same time, if you've lived long enough, you realize you can do A and B, and you might get D. And you're like, where'd that come from? Well, God's given you the book of Ecclesiastes to kind of help you with it. I feel like, um, yeah, I just think about my oldest son who just graduated college a week ago, getting ready to start a new job in Memphis, Tennessee. Um, he's 22 years old. I mean, just a lot of life ahead of him. You know what I'm saying? Like, I just... Trying to envision, he's got a lot of opportunities ahead of him. Got a great job, and and Lord just really blessed in many ways. And and so there's a way. If you guys remember when you're in your 20s, there's just all this ambition, excitement. Man, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this, and I'm going to get this, and and buy this, and purchase this, or whatever. I mean, all of it. And these are all good things. It's not bad. I'm not saying my son is saying this. These are things I was saying when I was in my 20s. And then life, um, it has a way of punching in the gut. It just does. 
There's nothing wrong with that kind of ambition when you're in your 20s. But you have a tendency when you get in your 40s and you look back and go, okay, I thought if I did this, this, and this, I would be here. What, what is, what's going on? I think God's given us a gift in Ecclesiastes to kind of help answer some of those questions that a lot of you might be experiencing right now. So I encourage you to stay with us. Uh, I know summer can be weird with vacations and with all the COVID restrictions. I'm fearful this is going to be a ghost town during the summer. It's like, we're out of here, right? Uh, but man, I encourage you to tune online uh, if you're on vacation and, and journey with us through this book. If I could recommend, I don't know if you're a reader, if you're a reader, if I could recommend one book to read this summer on the book of Ecclesiastes, it would be a book by a guy named Zach Eswine. It's called Recovering Eden. And um, I left the book at home or I would, I would show it to you. I have it right in my hands right now. Uh, we'll have a few of these available to you next week uh, if you want to purchase them here, but you can go to amazon.com and just you know, type in Zach S. Wine or Recovering Eden. And if you're on our weekly email, uh, if you're not, then you can go to the blue star here sign and we'll get you on that weekly email. Uh, we'll put a picture of the book and a link to where you can purchase it. But it is uh, an incredible book. I mean, I, I, yeah, really, really good. And so would highly encourage you to, to read that book. And you'll, you'll see me referencing it quite a bit over the next 12 weeks. All right. So today is kind of like intro. And we're using chapter one to kind of intro this sermon. And I want to read all of the chapter. And so I'm just going to ask you to remain seated and not stand. Just, uh, just kind of hear the word and let it sit with you. Uh, and remember, uh, as you are hearing this, and we'll say this at the end, these are words that are coming from God. This is God speaking to you. So Ecclesiastes 1, starting in verse 1. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem, absolute futility, says the teacher. Absolute futility. Everything is futile. What does a person gain for all of his efforts that he labors at under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets, panting. It returns to the place where it rises, gusting to the south and turning to the north, turning, turning goes the wind. The wind returns in its cycles. All the streams flow to the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are wearisome, more than anyone can say, the eye is not satisfied by seeing or the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Can anyone say about anything, look, this is new. It has already existed in the ages before us. There's no remembrance of those who came before and of those who will come after, there will also be no remembrance by those who follow them. So encouraging, right? Aren't you glad you came to church? I, the teacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem. I applied my mind to examine and explore through wisdom all that is done under the heaven 
God has given people this miserable task to keep them occupied. I've seen all the things that are done under the sun and have found everything to be futile, a pursuit, a chasing after the wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, see, I have amassed wisdom far beyond all those who were over Jerusalem before me, and my mind has thoroughly grasped wisdom and knowledge. I applied my mind to know wisdom and knowledge, madness and folly. I learned that this too is a pursuit of the wind. For with much wisdom, as much sorrow, as knowledge increases, grief increases. Hear this. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true and given to you in love. Let's pray. Father, I just ask that you'd help us to learn from this strange but wonderful gift that you've given to us in the book of Ecclesiastes. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So seven years ago when we were living in our first little home, it's about 1,200 square feet. I don't know, maybe stretching it a little bit. Um, it was in Crestwood, Kentucky. Um, so we were, our backyard had kind of like a fenced-in backyard, not because we built the fence, but because our neighbors built the fence. So we like really enjoyed the fenced-in backyard. And we would just let our two, uh, our two oldest at that time um, just run out there and play. So Michael Brown was probably about four I think Joseph was around two, and we noticed that there was a, a hole in the ground, and there was these little bees that kept coming in and out of this hole, and I think there were yellow jackets. That's what I could figure out, and so we did a little bit of research to kind of figure out how we're going to get rid of these yellow jackets, because I don't want my son, or my son's getting stung by them, because they're pretty aggressive. You know what I'm saying? They're not like kind bees. They're pretty aggressive, and so this is when my, um, my brother-in-law, Kathy's brother, was living with us. He was supposed to live with, live with us for a summer, and that ended up being two and a half years. I uh, don't know what happened there. Her parents said, hey, can you come and live with you for a summer? Said, yeah, sounds great. Two years later, he's still with us. But we had children, and that got him out uh, really quickly. Um, but we, uh, we were in the backyard trying to figure out how we're going to get rid of these bees. We done a little bit of research and found out that kerosene and, and burn them out can do it. So pour some kerosene in there, light it up, and that will get rid of these bees. And so one evening, we decided to to do this. But I don't have any kerosene, right? I don't need for kerosene. Why would I have kerosene in my house? I don't have kerosene heater. I'm like, there's no need for kerosene. I, but I do have gas. <laughs> and plenty of gas, all right? Mowers, all kinds of stuff. And so we thought, hey, you know, what could it do, right? Just pour a little bit of gas in the hole, light that sucker up, you know, it'll be fine. And over and over, Kathy looked at me and Mike and said, you should not do this. This is not a good idea. This is not a good idea. You should never, ever use gas as a fire starter. And so in true manly fashion, in true stupidity, oh, I'd be all right. It'd be all right. You know, it'd be fine, honey. You're just worrying about things you shouldn't worry about. And so we, we got it. And so Mike and I decided to get a little bit of gas. We poured that in the hole. Kathy decided to do the most wisest thing in the world to do, grab the children, head inside, and let the two idiots stand out there and do 
what they decided to do. So we poured some gas in that hole. We struck a match and blue flame was all over our feet, man. I mean, I was freaking out. I think Mike cussed. I probably held my tongue a little bit, but man, it was, I, we were absolutely terrified. And so, I mean, the, the stupidity just began to, to mount because we ran away from the fire, leaving the gas can right in the middle of this. And I wish I could tell you the story that a gas can blew up, but by God's grace, nothing happened. It just eventually went back into the hole and we killed all the bees, but we were terrified. Our hearts were absolutely beating. And I can remember Kathy coming out and saying to both of us, you should have listened to me. <laughs> and it was very, very true. We should have listened to Kathy. It reminded me of the Proverbs in Proverbs 12, 15, where it says this, the way of a fool, amen, is right in his own eyes. But a wise man listens to advice. Ecclesiastes is a book that will um, provoke us. It's a book that's supposed to make you uncomfortable. It's a book that's supposed to kind of disorient you. It's a book that's trying to keep you from going, but what about? But what about? It's, it's trying. I know this is hard, Western culture. And for all of us to live in the Bible Belt, it's trying to make you sit in what is really uncomfortable and see life as it really is. And here's the, the question that I think undergirds this, this whole book, and it will be a question that we keep coming back to over and over in this series. And this is what I'm landing on this morning. So it may feel like this sermon doesn't have a nice conclusion and it's supposed to not have a nice conclusion. That's on purpose. Because the question that I'm asking myself and I'm wanting us to ask ourselves is, will you listen? Will you listen to what the preacher in this book is trying to shout at you? Over and over in the Gospels, you hear Jesus say things like, or just one thing, he says, he who has ears, let him hear. And I always hear that and go, yeah, of course I've got ears, Jesus. All of us have got ears. You, in fact, you created them. But we don't hear, do we? We don't listen. I know my opening illustration was just a kind of a goofy, funny little illustration, but I can give you um, other stories in my life where I've chosen not to listen. And it was pretty wounding and painful. A lot of consequences. So the question that the, this book is kind of shouting at us is, Will you listen? Will you hear it? 
Or will you walk out of here Sunday after Sunday and just keep pretending? So this is what I want to do. I, I want to, like I said at the opening, this, this chapter one is sort of an intro for the book. It, it kind of whets your appetite of what's coming. And so I just want to, I want to walk through these verses real quickly here and, and highlight some things I think are really important for us to hear and understand and know as we enter into this book. And then I, I want to land the plane with asking that question again. Will you listen? So verse one uh, starts off with this, the words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Some of you might have translation where it says the words of the preacher or translation says the words of Koheleth. So that, that word there simply means it's someone who has gathered people together to learn. That's what that word means. It's the reason why our English translation either has teacher or preacher. And so I will use those interchangeably because in essence, what the book of Ecclesiastes is, it's like a sermon. It's what it is. It's like a, a pastor showing up on a Sunday morning and getting behind his pulpit and preaching a sermon. That's, that's what it is here. And so there's a lot of debate over who the preacher or the teacher is. Is it Solomon or is it someone else that's a descendant of David that's sort of like Solomon? And honestly, I don't know. I kind of lean toward that it's Solomon himself because it sure sounds a whole lot like Solomon when you look at the book of Proverbs as well as other passages of Scripture in First and Second Kings. And it just feels like Solomon. So I lean toward it being Solomon. And at the same time, I don't get hung up on whether who the author is. Do we know exactly who it is? Most likely, it could just have been someone that's anonymous and they want to remain anonymous. But the point is this. It's still the words of God. Whether we know the exact author and who it is does not make it less inspired. God inspired these words through a human author to write them. And so even though this is a human author writing these words down, this is God speaking to us and it should surprise us. And the reason why it should surprise us is that this preacher who is speaking the words of God to us comes up and hears the main point of his sermon. It's a one-point sermon with a whole bunch of illustrations, right? And a whole bunch of poetry and a whole bunch of stuff going on for the next 11 chapters. But here's this one point, verse 2. Absolute futility. Or some of you have translations that says meaningless or vanity. Absolute futility. Everything, everything is futile. Everything is meaningless. So that should unsettle us a little bit. That, that God inspired the preacher to come up behind his pulpit and here's the first words. Everything. Vanity. And I don't know about you. I don't know how you're responding to that. But I mean, inside me, even when I read this book, I'm going, really? Really? Come on. The word here that is translated vanity or meaningless or futility is the Hebrew word hevel. It's used 38 times in this book, which is obviously a big point of the whole book. It's not only where he, he begins his sermon, it's also where he ends the sermon. And, and this word means a, a wisp, a, a vapor, a smoke, a, a puff of wind, a mere breath. It, it's nothing you can get your hands on. It's the nearest thing that we have to zero. This is vanity, 
that's been used all throughout this book. It's a metaphor that helps us describe what life is. It's temporary. It's fleeting. It's also an enigma, which just basically means it's a, it, life can be puzzling, difficult to understand, sort of a, a paradox at times. It's very uncertain, unpredictable, unstable. It's a, the other metaphor he uses a chasing after the wind is what life can be like. It goes away really quickly. And even if we could grab a hold of it and catch it, if you could catch the wind, if you could grab a hold of smoke, what would you have? Nothing. Nothing. So that's the main point of his sermon. So where does he get this idea? Where does he get this statement that everything is futile, futility, meaningless, vanity? Well, he's going to answer that question throughout the entire book, but he gives us in verse 3 where he gets this idea that all of it is meaningless. He states it in a rhetorical question when he says this in verse 3, what does a person gain? What does a person gain? Profit for all of his efforts that he labors under the sun. Gain here is a, an economic term. It's, it's like, you know, you get paid, you pay some bills, you, you save a little bit, you give a little bit, and you live a little bit off of that. And then what do you have left? What's the, what's the surplus? What's the profit that you have left over? And so when, when all is said and done, when, when all of your life and all of your labor and your toil and your, and your striving that you do over the next, you know, God gives you 70 years, what do you have to show for it? What, what surplus do you have? What gain do you have? What profit do you have? And the, it's a rhetorical question because the, the preacher is basically saying, well, the answer is nothing. It's a chasing after the wind. It's vapor. It's smoke. It's you have nothing. So after the, all is said and done, all the years of your toil and work, what profit do you have? The preacher's coming to you and going, zero. Zero. And just like a good preacher, right, he anticipates pushback. Because all of us are going, ah. Oh. I'm pretty smart, right? Like there's something in us, whether we want to admit it or not. We read this and go, yeah, 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 I, I hear you. But man, look, man, I know there's gain. There's profit here. If I pursue hard, I, I get this and I get my name here or I get status. I, you know, raise a family, leave a legacy. You know what I'm saying? Like, like we just struggle with the, with the, the kind of such a dark perspective on life. Maybe he's just someone that's a a midlife crisis, he's just old and cranky and life didn't work out for him, you know, yeah. You know I'm saying we all have these little objections going on and it's like the preacher here anticipates those and says, okay, here's my proof. Let me give you a few examples. And I'll give you more because that's what's gonna happen for the next 11 chapters, but I'm gonna give you a few here right here in chapter one. The first one he says, here's first example, nature. Have you ever paid attention to nature? Verse five. The sun rises and the sun sets, panting. It hurries back to the place where it goes. Gusting to the south, turning to the north, turning, 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 goes the wind, and the wind returns in its cycles. All the streams flow to the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. 
Verse 8, all things are wearisome more than anyone can say. The eye is not satisfied by seeing or the ear filled with hearing. Like one commentator says, like the ocean, our senses are fed and fed and fed, but they're never filled up. So, so you can actually, after each one of these verses, you could just ask this question, what's the point of it? What's the point of it? What's the point of it? He's, he's picturing for us all this sort of activity, this, this ceaseless going, this illusion of change and progress. The wind seems to give the appearance of great activity, but when we really observed it and looked at it, it's just going around in a circle just like the sun is. The streams, they flow into the ocean, a lot of activity, but does it ever fill up? Is there ever any progress? And the answer is no. There's no gain. There's no profit. There's this endless cycle within nature. And if we would stop and observe our own lives, we would also see it in our own lives. If you go home this afternoon and you empty out your dishwasher and you load your dishwasher with dirty dishes and you push that little button and it goes through its little miracle thing and washes all your dishes, guess what you'll do tomorrow? Unless you go and buy paper plates, right? You'll do the same thing. Change a diaper. Man, it'd be great if you just say change one a day. Amen, moms, dads, right? Wouldn't it be awesome one day, one, the one diaper change, that's it, all I got this one, honey. Got it, right? You change one, two minutes later, you're probably changing another one. Laundry gets done. Then all of a sudden, you got kids throwing clean clothes in the laundry basket. Like, what in God's creation are you doing, right? But it fills up again, and what are you doing? You're doing laundry again. You cut the grass. It's a wonderful thing. It's awesome. It's enjoyable. You step back. You look at your job. Well done. Hallelujah. Get the mower in the garage. And then guess what you're going to do in four days? What are you going to do? You're going to cut the grass again. You pay bills this month. And guess what is going to happen again next month? This is not a trick question. I even pay more bills. I wish there'd be a month where we get a skip, right? It's like, hey, a Jubilee month. Amen. I preach a sermon today, and guess what's going to happen next week? I'll do it again. Unfortunately, there's a Sunday in every week. Amen? <laughs> there's never not a week where a Sunday is not in there. On and on and on and on it goes, just like Groundhog Day. It's absolutely exhausting, and that's why I said in verse 8, all things are wearisome more than one can say. And just in case you're not convinced by the nature of things and how you see stuff going on in nature. He talks about human history. Look what he says in verse 9. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There's nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new. It was here already long ago. It was here before our time. Some of us may get a little confused with this and you think, man, nothing new. What are you talking about? This guy didn't even have a clue what an iPhone was back in the day, right? We got computers. We got cars that drive themselves for crying out loud. We're like, we're kicking it. Nothing new. What are you talking about, man? He's not talking about new inventions necessarily. Zach Eswan explains this really well. His focus is this. Rather, the context of this chapter makes clear that his focus references the toil of human beings under the sun and the absence of any gain or profit that it provides them. As it relates to the seasons, conditions, temptations, and longings 
associated with being human. Nothing new takes place that has not already confronted those who have gone before us. Putting a space station in the skies has not kept our families intact, delivered us from dictators, or eradicated our selfish heart. New inventions make our bones heal quicker, but not our minds and not our hearts. It's nothing new. Nothing new under the sun. Nothing you're going to you know, come up with, oh, that's it. No, nothing new. And in case we're not convinced, once again, he says, well, maybe you're thinking, oh, I can leave a legacy, man. If I just imprint something in this, my children or a good friend of mine, man, I'll, I'll have a lasting legacy. That's profit. That's gain. That seems like something I can grasp a hold of. And then he gives us this, such encouraging words in verse 11. <laughs> There's no remembrance of men of old. Even those who are yet to come will not be removed by those who follow. There's absolutely no remembrance of you in a hundred years. You will be forgotten by your own family. So all the years that you do all this work and toil and effort, you have no gain. There's no pride. You're going to die is what he's saying there. Verse 4, generations come and generations go, but guess what remains forever? The earth. You don't. A couple years ago, we had to sell my mom's home because we needed to get some money in order to help pay for some of the living that she was doing and her assisted living there. And so my brother and I, in like a basically a week's time, packed up like 70 years of stuff. 70 years. And they make up six boxes in my garage. That's it. That's it. The point that the preacher's trying to make here in verses 5 through 11 is just kind of like this endless cycle. Not like um, the cyclical view in the, that saw in the circle of life where the you know, a whole sequence of events throughout the age will come around again and next age and the next. That's not what he's talking about here, but Derek Kigner in his commentary helps understand that it's more like the generation rising and falling for no apparent purpose, each toiling for what cannot satisfy or last and eventually fade even from memory. It's like generation after generation after generation hops up on this, this treadmill that we, that we call life and we're running hard, we're going hard after, we're working up a sweat, man, we're, we're dominating things. And at the end of the day, there's nothing to show for it. And it's almost like the preacher said, okay, get on the treadmill, go for it, man, go for it. Run hard, do what you want to. But I'm telling you what, there's not gonna be any progress. You're not gonna go anywhere. There's not gonna be any gain for you. It's meaningless, it's vanity. That's why I'm asking, will you listen to this? Or will you just keep pretending that you're the exception? And the last little anticipation of an objection, I think, is in verses 12 through 17, where he kind of gives us a biography. It's kind of weird. It feels like, okay, what are you doing here? It's almost like, just like a good preacher, you anticipate people's pushback. And here's the other pushback. Well, who's this joker, <laughs> right? I mean, who is he for real? Like, who is this guy? 
I mean, it was like, you know, if I would come up here and, you know, I don't know, um, just use golf, for example, since that's the PGA Championship's going on right now. You know, hey, the PGA Championship, you think it's going to do something for you, but once you win it, it's just going to leave you like with nothing. You're going to enjoy it for a few seconds, but then the next day you're going to wake up and feel this emptiness. You would look at me and say, well, what, what do you know, Lyle? You can't even hit the ball straight down a fairway for crying out loud. You're trying to tell me PGA Championship. You're a moron, right? Like you would, I got to have some credibility in what I'm saying. And it's almost like the preacher is anticipating this and saying, look, I know what I'm talking about. I'm not someone's going through a midlife crisis. I'm not an old man in their 80s, just bitter and cynical. No, I know what I'm talking about. And it's just all you need is one verse. And it's verse 12 where he says, I, the teacher, have been king. That's all you need to know because king translates no restraints. Are you following me? Like all of us have restraints. If you have a family, you have restraints. You can't just wake up tomorrow morning if you want to be a good dad or mom and a respectable person in society and go, I'm done. I'm going to take a hiatus for about six months out into the woods because I got to figure my life out. Man, if you had any friends around you that had any sense, they'd go, you're an idiot. You're a moron. You can't go do that. You have a restraint. It's called family, right? You have, you have a restraint. All of us have some restraints to money, no matter how wealthy you may be. Like there's a limit to what you can and cannot do. You have restraints in the sense of like your accessibility and be able to go places and do things because you've got a job, you've got a family, whatever. But a king doesn't have those restraints. None. I have all the wealth, all the power, all the time. I could pursue all of this. And when I did, here's my conclusion. Everything, vanity, meaningless, futile. What does it profit you? What do you gain with all your work, all your busyness? You're 60 hours a week. What do you gain? I'll tell you, you gain nothing. And he'll say, I know what I'm talking about because I sought it out. So will you listen? Will you, will I listen to what the preacher is saying? At the end of the book in chapter 12, verse 10, it says this, the teacher searched to find just the right words and what he wrote was upright and true. The words of the wise are like goads. And basically the picture of that is just, it's, a, it's a cattle prodder. It's like it's trying to get you to go somewhere. So at the end of the day, the preacher's not fine with you guys coming to the preacher and saying, man, great sermon. Man, good job today. Man, that was so, oh, so energy. What's right on, man, loved it. That illustration at the beginning, oh, dude, that's so good. You know, great job today. That's not what the preacher's after, nor is it what I'm after. I could give a rip if you liked what I said. What the preacher wants in this book is for you to listen. Don't walk out these doors and just keep pretending. 
Will you listen? That life in this world is like chasing after the wind. You think you're going to gain something, but actually you don't. It's just you can't catch it. One of the things that's going to be, I don't know if it's difficult or, or maybe difficult is the right word here, because the way that the preacher has laid this book out and laid out his sermon, so to speak, is absolutely brilliant. And, and what I mean by that is that he is, he is making us weed through a ton of stuff because the point, the main point of the entire book is not found to the very end of the book. And so that translates for me and for us is that all of us have this tendency to go, well, it's not vain because we know Jesus. It's not vanity because we know Jesus. It's not meaningless because we, we know Jesus. He came, lived the life that we should have lived, died the death that we should have died. He, and he's alive. He's, he's risen to life. And that breeds meaning and purpose in, in the most mundane things that we do, changing diapers, whatever it is we do in life, he brings meaning to that, as well as gives us the capacity to be able to enjoy the things that God has given us without making them little bitty mini gods. And I want to say, yes, that is all very true. And at the same time, I want to kind of hold that back because I want you to feel what the author wants you to feel. And that is this, that is a chase life in and of itself is a chasing after the wind. It's it's nothing. It's vanity. You've got to feel this. You've got to feel kind of the, the, the lostness, the, the, the just the, 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 just the, the, I don't know, I'm trying to, I'm losing words up here, but you know what I'm trying to say? Like, I want you to feel it before we, we get to the remedy, before we get to the answer. And so I'm okay sometimes on a Sunday in a sermon to kind of leave it without tidying it up for you. Oh, I know this is what it says, but remember Jesus. Oh, I know this is what it says, but man, we are now living under the sun, S-O-N. Amen? That's just trite. I love how Zach Aswan says this. As a reader, you will have to start off with meaninglessness and wade through 12 chapters of tension, poetry, proverbs, unanswered questions, unsettling speech, and intimate language before arriving at the point he wants to make. And because of this approach, in order to get to the truth he wants us to see, we have to be willing to take a look at the things we do not like. And here's, here's an example. Chapter 1, verses 17 through 18, did you hear this? I, I applied my mind to know wisdom and knowledge, madness and folly. I learned that is too a pursuit of wind. For with much wisdom is much sorrow, and knowledge increases, grief increases. How do you want verse 18 to read? I know as a parent, I want 18 to read this. For with much wisdom becomes a better life. With more knowledge, grief is avoided. That's what I wanted to say. Because I want my sons to pursue after wisdom. Like, well, I don't want you to go to verse 18, right? Let's leave that out. But no, you got to go there. You've got to go. you got to sit with what feels kind of unsettling, uncomfortable. 
Zach Aswine goes on in this same quote and says this, show me a person who has no patience for, for encountering a story of sin and brokenness in a novel or a movie, and I will show you a person impatient with the people with whom they live. We have to be willing to walk and wade through the uncomfortable brokenness of life. Learning how to handle this book is an exercise itself, training us to wait and travel on amid the unanswered and everyday unpleasantness found in our real worlds. The book intends to train us in our capacity for waiting upon God amid the uncomfortable unfixed. So will we listen? Or will we go on pretending that if I get this promotion, I land this job, I get into this school, I write this book, that I will finally feel significant and believe I'm going to leave some kind of lasting legacy. Will we listen? Or will we go on pretending that if I change jobs, if I can travel, get out of my marriage, I won't experience the humdrum, ordinariness, mundaneness of life? Will we listen? Or will we go on pretending that if I move to a new house, I'll be happy and I'll never move again? Will we listen? Or will we go on pretending that if I end this relationship and start a new one, that I'll never feel trapped again? Will we listen? Or we go on pretending that if I was married or not married, I would finally be content. Will we listen? Will we listen? Let's pray. Just ask us to take a few minutes here just to be still, to be quiet, and ask the Spirit of God to just speak, to reveal, to show things in your life that he's showing from his word. Jesus, you said, what does it profit a man to gain the entire world but to lose his own soul? You also said, Lord, and you've got all these barns stored up with a bunch of stuffs. You fool. This very day, this very day, you will meet your creator and you are not rich toward God. Someone who is greater has come and his name is Jesus. Lord, help us to hear his words. Help us to listen to him. Help us to heed what he has said over and over. May we who have ears hear and listen 
and stop chasing the wind. Oh, God, help us. Hey, I'm Lyle Drury and the lead pastor at Sojourn Church, J-Town. Thanks for listening. We are here to reach people with the gospel, build them up as a church, and send them into the world to be a faithful, loving presence. For more sermons, info about our church, or ways you can support our ministry, visit sojournchurch.com slash jtown.